Welcome everyone to episode six of Between Two Docs, where Dr. Harris Cohen and myself, Dr. Dominic Valentino, are here to give you straight talk from two doctors who are dealing with COVID in the inpatient and outpatient setting and the ICU. We don't have politics or hysteria in store for you, but we do have answers to some of the questions that you've submitted in the last week. Uh, continue to send them to us. We do read them all and we'll try to get to as many as we can. Um, we also uh, have a triad of segments today, just like our prior shows. Uh, we do have a guest uh, that'll be joining us shortly, um, John Barnes, uh, talking about how uh, funerals and memorial services have been affected by COVID. Um, and then we'll, at the end, get to some questions. But first, let's start with the news. Dr. Cohen is going to address something that is a very hot topic right now. Yeah, the news that struck me the most this week and probably is dominating most of your headlines is the surging across multiple states. Uh, 50 states in the country, as far as I remember, I believe 21 or 22 of them currently are seeing increasing numbers of cases. Now, let's break this down a little bit. The, the states that are getting the most right now and what you're probably seeing on your news feeds are Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, maybe a little bit of North Carolina. Uh, we don't like Duke anyway, so that's fine. Um, but basically, um, what we're seeing is increasing tests coming back positive in these states, significantly so in Arizona. What I'd like to look at is the positive test rate. So we know that there's been a ton of testing across the country, way more than we have. So I like to look at the number of positives divided by the number of tests. And that gives you the true amount of positive tests that are out there. Because if we're testing 100,000 people, of course, testing rates are going to go up. But what are the true positives? So with these numbers in mind, there's a really cool website out there that I've been tinkering with uh, that Johns Hopkins uh, furnishes for free where you can break it down by country and by state where they show you tests, they show you positive tests, and they show you a percentage positive testing rate, and you can watch that curve, which I think is super, super telling. Just messing around before we came online tonight, we see New York that is a 0.9% positive test rate. Very impressive. Then we have Arizona, other end of the spectrum, close to 20%. California and Texas, just 5%. California, 7.5%. And climbing. Pennsylvania, my home state, and the state just below uh, where, where Dr. Valentino lives, has a diving curve. Very impressed with Pennsylvania. Uh, what they're looking for with the WHO, the World Health Organization, says is that, is that countries that are conducting tests extensively for COVID-19, the goal is to remain at below 5% for at least 14 days. And we're not seeing that in some of these states. Remember, the testing and the data and the data that's submitted and compiled is only as good as who's compiling and submitting the data. The data comes from states on an independent level. And oftentimes, they go back and retroactively change these numbers. There can be a two to three week delay in when someone's infected at getting positive and then two more weeks from there till the death rates start to climb. So the death is only as good as the data. So what we should be looking for here is how many people are going to the ERs for care? How many people are being hospitalized? Is there a bed capacity strain in some of these states? And in Arizona, we're seeing bed capacity at or higher than the levels way back a couple months ago when the pandemic first started. That's a scary number. And also, these are warm weather states that we're talking about. The hope that this was going to go away in the summer is probably not realistic based on what we're seeing in Arizona, Texas, Florida, and California. Death rates do continue to go down. We're treating people earlier. We're treating people better. We've learned a lot in the past couple months. Or maybe the old and the infirm are still sheltering in place. But what it comes down to 
as these numbers continue to materialize, is to continue to please wash your hands, please wear a mask when appropriate, please socially distance. If you're immunocompromised, if you're older, if you have other comorbidities, please stay away, please stay home until this thing passes, which hopefully is sooner rather than later. In some states, we're doing great, go Pennsylvania. In some states, not so great, Arizona. We'll see what the numbers show us in the future. Um, and again, the numbers are only as good as what's being submitted into these databases. So that struck me. Uh, Dr. Valentino, I know you're gonna talk about some interesting data about a cool study that the yeah. numbers started to surface this week. Yeah, uh, you know, we've, we've all been writing and talking about uh, the, the studies that have been recruiting patients. Um, and this is for a variety of things. And, and uh, of course, a lot of different treatment um, algorithms are being looked at. And one of them, um, this is a, a large um, trial that's undergoing called the recovery trial in the United Kingdom. Um, it's actually, uh, they've recruited over 11,500 patients in total. And there are multiple arms looking at different um, therapeutics, including what we're going to talk about today, the dexmethasone study, uh, also tocilizumab, azithromycin is being looked at, and a few others. So there's going to be uh, more data sets coming out, uh, which I find very exciting because this is actually a reasonable study in that it's multi-center. I believe there's over 140, close to 150 um, medical centers in the United Kingdom that are all tied into this. So it's not one center or one group doing this. And um, British Medical Journal um, published this about a week ago, um, the dexmethadone study. Dexmethadone is a glucocorticoid, so we, it's a steroid. So when we talk about steroids, we're not talking about anabolic steroids that bulk you up. We're talking about glucocorticoids or mineralocorticoids. Those are steroids that are occurring in the body, glucocorticoids, alone give you anti-inflammatory effect, mineralocorticoids help to um, control salt balances, sodium balances, and other electrolytes in the blood. Um, dexmethasone happens to be a pure glucocorticoid and a very potent one. Um, to compare prednisone, which many people may be familiar with as you can take this, or methylprednisolone, which is also known as a dose pack, um, that is a mixture of glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid activity. So in this study, patients who were uh, hospitalized with more severe COVID um, were given six milligrams a day of dexmethasone. To put that into perspective, that's about the equivalent of 40 milligrams of prednisone a day. So while it sounds like a small dose, it's all about potency. And 40 milligrams of prednisone a day is a, uh, on the, getting into the moderate uh, dosing range. It's certainly not real low dose. Um, what they looked at was the 28-day mortality, and they found that um, in this group of 21,004 patients who were given the drug versus 4,321 patients who got standard care not getting this drug, there was a 17% uh, benefit in 20 in 28-day mortality. That's significant. Um, there's also a trend which is is very significant in the work that I do in the ICU there was a significant trend in improvement in the sickest of patients who required a ventilator. So again, we've been acquiring knowledge about the use of anti-inflammatory medicines like this over the last three months. I've seen it in practice, although my practice has not used dexmethasone, we've been using mostly uh, methylprednisolone, which is solumedrol, and that's also under study. Um, but we've seen the effect of these steroids in altering the course of the cytokine storm 
uh, that Dr. Cohen and I have, have talked about in the past. So very exciting, more to come. Keep tuned in for more stuff coming out of the recovery trial, but this is promising and it's a good step forward. So it is my special honor to welcome our guest this week, uh, Mr. John Barnes. Uh, proud to say that he is a fellow North Catholic Falcon, class of 1989. Um, and just, uh, I guess, in the same pathway I did, he uh, went to LaSalle University where he graduated in 1994. And then John went on to the Northampton uh, County School of Mortuary Sciences where he graduated in 1995 and became a licensed funeral director in 1996. Um, he is the uh, owner of the McCafferty, Sweeney, Slavinsky, Barnes Funerals and Cremations uh, of Tarsdale Avenue in Northeast Philadelphia. Uh, he's also the director at Slavinsky Sikarsky Funeral Home in Northeast Philadelphia. And uh, proud to say that John is very much a community leader in Philadelphia. Uh, he's been deeply involved with a number of charitable organizations uh, as either president or chairman and like to think of him as uh, kind of a mover and shaker who does things to benefit the community. We're happy to have him here today to share a perspective on something that a lot of people might not be thinking about but many people have experienced and when we lose a loved one um, we often call a funeral director and we make arrangements and Ordinarily, that results in some type of a, of a viewing and a funeral, and that's all changed um, with the uh, COVID pandemic. And so John's going to talk to us about a couple of things that have happened in, in his um, profession and uh, maybe give us some helpful tips for folks that uh, may be um, going through the grieving process in the near future. So welcome, John. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to. Um, a question uh, that we, you know, I think would be pertinent here is, uh, so can you tell us a little bit about how services to honor uh, deceased loved ones have, have changed really since March when all of this started uh, ramping up? Yeah, so I wanted to bring you into my funeral home tonight. As you can see behind me, uh, you see a funeral home. And if you look around, and I don't know if you can see too well over my shoulders, um, the chairs are spaced apart. Now, we're, we're a building that uh, probably has 60 seats in it normally. Mm. Uh, we were down to 10 chairs over the last couple months because uh, all the regulations and, uh, and the guidance that we received said to have 10 people maximum in the building. So we took out 50 chairs and put them in storage. And we were able to bring out 15 more chairs over the last uh, week or so. So now we can have 25 people in the building. And it's really just to keep people safe. We have hand sanitizing stations, and um, whoever thought we'd be, uh, you know, looking for Clorox wipes, uh, you know, every day. I would go to a supermarket and try to grab Clorox wipes. You just couldn't get them. So um, the biggest change is, uh, is size of the crowd. In the beginning, you know, it was people were even hesitant to have funerals for COVID-19 uh, positive uh, people. Uh, we, we were never afraid of that. You know, our staff is trained and, and we're very good at what we do. And we were able to honor uh, loved ones and and have funerals for their families. I know many funeral homes just kind of shut down and said, we'll only do graveside services. We don't want to allow people in our building. So wow. we just went a different route and we just decided to care for people and bring them in the best that we could have meetings outside. You know, we're making funeral arrangements in the parking lot because we just didn't know how to handle things, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in that small space environment. So we were able to move forward slowly, you know, just like you guys, you, you learned a little bit in the beginning and you just uh, educated yourself. So smaller size, um, that's, 
probably the, the biggest change for a lot of people. Okay. Well, John, thank you for all of your service, obviously, to the community and the families who really, it, it, it's been a struggle for a lot of people. And, you know, no one wants to see your business go up. Um, and, you know, Dr. Valentino and myself, our whole job is to keep people away from your home as best as possible. Yeah. Uh, but knowing that you're there is fantastic. I mean, you know, my concern from the doctor's standpoint is how are you keeping your and your crew over there safe dealing with probable COVID-19 deaths, uh, bodies that are coming to you right from a hospital. What have you changed in your sort of regimen and body preparation and service preparation to keep everybody safe on your end? So you guys have been great in the beginning, the doctors and, and communicating with us. Um, you know, people are, I see on Facebook and, and, and I see it all the time that, you know, uh, someone was in a car accident, so they, they put in the cause of death as COVID-19. It, it, that's not true. So I just want to get that out there. That it's a fact that it's, it's not true. I see hundreds of death certificates a year, and many of which over the last few months have said COVID-19 positive deaths. So the hospitals and the nursing homes have been good uh, in, in communicating with us over who's positive and who's negative because, you know, people are still dying from cancer and heart attacks and overdoses and things like that. So um, it's great to be able to communicate and find out what people have passed away from. Now, we still treat everyone like they're COVID-19 positive. In this environment, you have to. I mean, you do that when you go shopping. You do that when you see patients. So um, our, our staff is well-trained in that. We have a, a young funeral director, young Joe Slobinski, that's just done an outstanding job caring for all these people. And um, he's been uh, had the right equipment, the right PPE, the, the, you know, the right masks. Uh, we've been able to get gloves. We've been able to get everything we need the disinfectant sprays, um, caring for the deceased. There's a lot of things you have to do to sanitize and disinfect and prepare these deceased so that their loved ones can spend time with them. Um, all too often I heard about grandparents or, or parents in nursing homes that children couldn't see them for three months. Now the final time they get to see them is at our funeral home. So how uh, you know great of an opportunity is for us to allow them to see their parents one more time who died in a nursing home. Because remember, in the beginning, the nursing homes were quarantined completely. Everyone was just shut in there and locked in. And, uh, you know, you had a 95-year-old woman FaceTiming with her, you know, 50-year-old daughter. It's, it's difficult. So they were able to, um, to do, a, you know, a, a good job when they came to us that we could bring them in and let them spend time together and, and spend time with their loved ones. That was very important to a lot of people. So we were able to bring them in here, care for them, and make sure that everyone's in a safe environment. Uh, we did hire a disinfectant and sanitization company. Whoever thought I'd have guys walking around in hazmat suits in my funeral home, the only funeral home that I live at with my family, just fogging and spraying and cleaning and wiping everything down. So we were able to take care of the, the, the deceased, we were able to take care of the building, and we were able to take care of those coming in to spend time together. So it was really, uh, we've had no problems, no cases. Our staff is all tested negative for anybody. You know, we've been, we've been uh, able to get through this so far. And, uh, and we're hoping things stay this way and stay safe for everyone. Yeah, and sounds like, you know, a lot what we've experienced in the medical community and making a lot of changes on the fly and adapting, and it sounds like you've done a great job with that. And, and this is a forward-thinking question. You know, we're always being asked um, crystal ball questions, you know. Um, what, what do you see uh, things uh, being like in the next, let's say, six months in terms of, um, your profession and, and what families might come to expect when they lose a loved one. So the, the deaths in our area, and, and we're in Northeast Philadelphia, so we, you know, we were hit hard. We weren't hit like New York or anything like that. So 
over the next six months, I see things are flattening. I'm sure you see that in your own in your own work in the hospital that uh, things are flattening. So that's the positive of this. People out into the funeral home, but that COVID-19 death rate has slowed, and that's a good thing. No one wants to see a pandemic. You know, no one wants to see this hundred thousand people die. You know, that that shouldn't have died. I mean, that's that's the reality of it. I hear so often that oh, you know, it's all the older people. But these people were supposed to live many more years. They were supposed to celebrate birthdays and anniversaries. My mom died about a year ago. She, she was a smoker her whole life, and that's what, you know, her, her lungs and, and, and difficulty and all that. My mom would have died from this, you know. So people should have lived longer, and that's the most saddening thing of all this. Now, over the next six months, I see returning to more normal. Uh, our requirements now are you have to wear a mask in the building. Um, we do have hand sanitizing. We do, uh, we don't test for temperatures, things like that, but, but we want to take, so over the next six months, I can see that, you know, things will open up a little bit more. Our Catholic churches and churches in the country are now reopening. So you're seeing larger and larger gatherings for religious uh, reasons. You're going to see larger and larger gatherings for funeral reasons. I probably have 10 to 12 funerals, memorial services, life celebrations that we haven't even scheduled yet. People hoping for, say, July, August, September. So these are people that have died over the last three months during the pandemic. And uh, we still, families still have their urns with them. And they do want to say their goodbyes. You know, who wants to have a funeral with 10 people? You know, you want to be hugged and you want to be cared for and you want to cry together. And it's hard to do, uh, you know, on a Facebook live stream of a funeral or with 10 family members. So we've adapted. We've done the best we could. But we have to still honor these people over the next month, you know, when things start to return to, to more normal. Uh, I, I hear of a lot of summer barbecues where they're going to have dad's urn there and pictures and slideshows and videos, or let's get together down the shore at, uh, at one of the local pubs and, and have a toast to, uh, to mom. Like people are doing that. That's the plans for the future. So we'll see through July, August, as things are, uh, you know, some of the, the reins are, that are tightened on us right now are loosened a little bit to allow for some more public gatherings. So I, I see that happening. A perfect example of the National Military Cemetery in Bucks County. You know, it's a state-of-the-art facility. It's the, the top, you know, place you can go to be buried for quality and care. And, uh, and they limited their, you know, attendance to 10 people. For a little while there, you had to stay in your car as you arrived at the cemetery for the service. And the priest could get out of out of his car and say prayers with everyone with their windows rolled down. So it just was a just a crazy surreal time. But even that's all lessening, and, and those rains are, are are lessening a little bit. So you'll see more and more of people that are home and on mantles or or uh, in urns at home. They're going to be laid to rest, and that's going to be happening over the next six months more and more. So funerals that had had, had supposed to happen over the last three months will happen over the next, you know, two, three, four, five months. So, yeah, that's, that's what I see happening. Great. So you guys have, have pivoted really nicely and, you know, trying to anticipate families' needs. And, you know, obviously you're delivering your, your, your services with a tremendous amount of compassion, which, which is obvious just, just talking to you briefly tonight. How do you advise families who have sick one, either COVID or non-COVID, or expected to lose a loved one in the next month or two? How are you helping with pre-planning and planning when it's not COVID related, or if it is COVID related, you mentioned some of these delayed burials being, you know, people being laid to rest on a delayed time frame. What other advice would you give to loved ones of people who are suffering right now and are unfortunately on their way out? Uh, my only advice 
faces open dialogue. You know, it's, it's, I know it's hard to do for, for someone to pick up a phone and call a funeral home. It's probably the worst phone call that, that people want, that could ever make. But call your local funeral home, whether it's me if you want advice, even if you, you don't use our funeral homes or anything like that. I always tell people, just call me. That's what I'm here for. A lot of people like to use their local funeral home, whether it's in Philadelphia or Delaware or Bucks County or New Jersey. Call a local funeral home. Call me. I'll give you some guidance and tell you who's, who to call and who, who handles things properly. So my, my advice is keep an open line of dialogue with the funeral home. And kind of, I, I get so many calls each day, you know, dad's, uh, dad's COVID-19 positive in a nursing home or mom's uh, on a ventilator in a hospital. What do I do? And we can at least know what's happening going forward. I get that phone call that, you know, mom's at home on hospice. She is COVID-19 positive. What do I do? I mean, the first thing I say is, you know, we're here to help. We're here to answer. We're here to guide you guys. And um, I also like to tell them everything, all the steps. Our staff will come there. They're going to be wearing gloves and masks and taking the utmost care to, to care for your loved one, to take them into our care. So, you know, to have funeral directors walking into a home with a mask and gloves, we never did that before. We go into someone's home in a suit and a tie and speak to them and gently take a loved one into our care. Now we have to be protected. Our staff has to be protected. So we want to prepare people for that to know the nexus. And then we like to find out, do they want to have an open casket viewing for someone? And a lot of people say, I didn't even know that I could have a viewing for my mom. I thought, I read that, I saw on Facebook that you have to go right to the crematory. That's so not true. So I, I, I urge people to have an open line of dialogue and communication. I think it's really important. So then they can make some informed decisions. When in our care, should we embalm, prepare, sanitize, and care for their loved one? Or maybe they do decide cremation, that's just because it's their choice, and then we can be prepared and do that. We're making a lot of funeral uh, arrangements just like we are now. I'm the kind of guy, I've been in, I don't know, hundreds of people's houses over the years. I go into their home, I sit at their kitchen table, and we talk about funeral arrangements and plans and what they want for their loved one. I'm doing it through Zoom now. I didn't even know what Zoom was three months ago. I didn't have a Zoom account. I, I didn't know. I'm learning what FaceTime is. You know, I'm making a lot of phone calls. I'm emailing a lot more. Uh, we're developing a website so that you, you don't have to have that interpersonal communication if you don't want to. The people will be able to just input data and send it to us so that they feel more protected. And because we don't know what's going to happen next in the next few years. That's, that's the, the scary, crazy thing that we just, you know, we don't want to have a grip. We don't have a grip on all this yet. Yeah. So, so my advice is line of communication, have some dialogue. If someone's positive or not, you know, we just want to be able to, to let you know what's going on. Uh, rules are changing every day. And, and I, I read these emails every day from the governor. I'm, I'm on top of this. Our, our local uh, Pennsylvania Funeral Directors Association is great at communicating with us the rules, the regulations, and how to keep people safe. So, so I'm trying to remain as educated as possible and trying to communicate that with people. So just pick up the phone and call a local funeral home. Um, they're all there to help. You know, there's a lot of good guys and, and girls out there, a lot of good funeral directors that want to help and want to keep everyone safe. So yeah, make a phone call or call, email a funeral home, text a funeral director. That's, that's what we're here for, just to help a little bit. Yeah, John, I, I think that's a tremendous amount of great information. I mean, you've taught me some things that, of course, I, I, I didn't know about, uh, and especially in terms of what's been happening lately. I, I think a lot of our uh, viewers will find this information very helpful. I think you can never be too prepared, and, and you, you can't be overeducated about important topics like this. So this has been really great to have you. I'm proud to have known you all these years uh, before we Thank you. recorded. Thank you. 
John and I were just talking about how we first met. I was pumping gas at my dad's shop and John was bringing in the cars and getting fueled up. And that was what, 30 years ago. And here we are. Yeah, I, I always say I started in the mail room of the funeral service. I cut grass, I washed white walls. You remember what white walls were? Yeah. And I would bring them to Dom's family service station for inspections and gas and things like that. So um, I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, and I, I always say you guys are all the first responders. You do a great job. We're the last responders. We're here to help people. And, you know, when the times do come that they really need that help. And, and I appreciate what you guys are doing. You're doing a great job. I love the facts. I, I share your post all the time. And I just say it's the facts, the facts, and nothing but the facts, you know. And I, 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 I appreciate you guys for what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks again, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Have a great night. Thanks, guys. You Take too. Care. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks. That was uh, extremely informative, and uh, I appreciate uh, John coming on tonight and sharing his, his thoughts with Dr. Valentino and myself. Uh, we're going to move on to our third section right now, which are, is our questions and uh, commentary section, which uh, comes from the email address that you're also kind to send questions to. We got a lot of them this week, and Dr. Valentino and I parsed through them, and we're each going to grab a couple. The first question that, uh, that stuck out to me was, you know, it's getting hot out. Pools are starting to open depending on where your state is, both private and community pools. Are they safe? Um, it, it's a great question. And it's, of course, like every answer that Dr. Valentino and I give, it's multifaceted. We like to hear ourselves talk sometimes. But the reality is, in the pool, you're pretty safe. You know, the CDC has given us some, some guidelines on this. And COVID-19 does not easily spread in a pool or a hot tub or a spa or water play areas. You know, as long as these pools are maintained properly with chlor uh, chlorine and bromine and other chemicals that they use, typically we do not think that it's a very friendly environment for uh, SARS-CoV-2. The bigger concern with pools is what happens outside of the pool. Pools have a lot of high touch areas with ladders and railings for kids and adults to get in and out. I'm more concerned about the pool deck and spacing of chairs and spacing of towels on the ground and also spacing within the pool. It's very tough for children to, to stay six feet apart on land. It's tougher in the water. There's horseplay, there's splashing. Uh, there will be uh, pools where there's lap lanes where they got to figure out a system to keep people six feet apart, which is a little bit easier when people are swimming laps as an adult. But the reality is pools are probably not a super scary area for supervised children. You want to make sure that when they get out of the pool, if they're definitely touching a railing, that they wash their hands in water. You want to keep everybody apart on the pool deck and on the grounds of the pool as best as you can while remaining socially distant. But it's getting hot out. We want to get back to our summer lives. Pools are a lot of fun. And I think there are probably precautions that most of us can take to make it a safe environment. So do explore that option this summer. Do make sure that the appropriate chemicals are being used if you're going to a friend's house or to a community pool as they start to open. But I think this can be done very safely. Yeah, and, and another uh, question, again, looking forward uh, is, do we think that hospitals are ready for the second wave if it does come in, in the fall or even late summer? Um, I can say, of course, no one can speak for all hospitals, and there's a lot of variety in what hospitals have as far as capability, um, financial resources, physical resources, and, and even expertise at the ground level um, of, of various uh, physician and nursing staff and pharmacy staff. However, I do think that hospitals have learned and adapted a lot as a whole. 
Um, this is especially true of larger healthcare systems. Um, sure, everyone would like to go back to February and prepare for March differently, but I think we've learned in areas where we've made mistakes. Um, and I think that if we do get hit with an influx of patients, um, there's going to be a bit more order to the chaos. There's going to be a bit more know-how, um, and there already is. You know, when we look at, talk to my colleagues in, in the uh, ICU, and we've got certain patients on a certain area that, that have COVID uh, and other patients who don't in a separate area, um, the challenge is not so much, what are we doing for these patients? It's actually like, we want to see them get better, get better faster, but it's not a matter of we're not sure what to do. We don't know what tests to order. That kind of stuff was the initial kind of panic in March where testing wasn't available, where tests took five or six days to get back. We're down to two hours. Um, you know, so there's a lot more preparedness there on, on many levels. And I do think we'll be well positioned if it does happen. Yeah, great answer and a very reassuring one, especially for, for me in the outpatient world where we had some of the same struggles on not knowing what to do. So I'm glad to see that our folks in the hospitals have a lot more confidence. Uh, the, the next question that I, we got this week is from a teacher. You know, the focus has been on the kids and students, uh, but fall will be here at some point. And what, what are we going to do to protect teachers when the school year begins? Uh, we know that luckily children are not often as affected by this as far as disease or as far as outward disease or as far as illness, but we do worry about the teachers. And there's some interesting st statistics out there um, that, that I actually looked up. 18% um, of teachers in this country are over age 55 and a third are over the age of 60. And this is the age group that accounts for over 90% of the deaths in the United States due to COVID-19. That's a really telling stat. So, you know, we're worried about our kids getting back, but we have to do so in a way that the teachers are going to be protected. And I think that is absolutely going to be taken into account as we sort of reintroduce the idea of school in August or September. So while kids are not as effective, they are definitely a pool of viral spread and transmission. Kids are generally disgusting. They noses, they cough and sneeze with reckless abandon. So I think there is going to be a huge role for sanitation or education hand-washing education, masks is going to be a complicated uh, tell or ask uh, for, 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 for kids. They're going to play with the masks all day, especially the younger ones. Special needs children are going to have a really hard time with masks, and some of the adults are as well. Uh, while that would cut down and mitigate some of the infections, that may not be realistic. So I think we're going to see clever people out there trying to bubble up these classrooms. In other words, keeping kids with the same teacher for most not all of the day, minimizing uh, transitions between classes, uh, maybe moving the teachers around a little bit more to keep them safe, trying to be as outdoors as possible. Obviously, if you're in a, in a nice climate, you can do a lot of teaching outside, which would be really cool. Um, and I think a hybrid schedule is going to be in play. I really do. I think we're going to see uh, smaller classroom sizes. I think the teachers are going to have to pivot towards a combination of in-class and remote instruction in districts and schools are able to do that to protect the kids and the teachers as well. Way more to come on this. We still have a couple months. And as Dr. Valentino just said, our learnings are incredible from month to month. Our learning curve has also been flattened, not only in medicine, but in how to 
prevent this from happening. So way more to come, but we do have to protect our teachers based on this, uh, the statistics that we just discussed. Yeah. And, and, and in line with talking about kids and back to school, this, this concept of vaccines always comes up and um, there's been a lot of chatter in the news uh, going back to even March um, about ideas that other vaccines might protect people or groups from COVID, even though these are not COVID vaccines. And two examples of this are MMR, which is measles, mumps, rubella, and something we're not as familiar with in the United States, but is more uh, popular in other developing countries called BCG, um, which is common, which, which is an older, older immunostimulant um, type of vaccine that was originally developed for tuberculosis, but has some other uses in other disease states. And, you know, I think we have to be careful when we're reading these things, because for one, right now, there are no data or studies that say that these are absolutely protective or helpful. Where the uh, interest in these uh, was placed was more in hypothesis generating ideas in that you're giving something that stimulates the immune system against certain proteins of another virus. Well, what about if that virus, for example, um, what's in the, uh, the, the measles, mumps, rubella, what about if one of those antibodies that your body makes to that also is similar to what uh, SARS-CoV-2 is? Would that help? And that's an area of interest that's actually being looked at. But there's a difference between a hypothesis generating question and we prove this. They're two different things. The hypothesis generating question generally drives people to put together studies to look at something in an organized fashion so that you can get a good, reliable, statistically significant answer to a question. So right now, um, there are observational data that says in countries where BCG is used still, they had initially lower rates of, uh, of COVID. And MMR is interesting because kids in the United States, kids, young adults tend to get this through their um, primary um, vaccinations and boosters. Whereas when you get into your 50s and 60s, you're not getting boosters for this and the immunity is thought to wane. And that was supposed to be one of the reasons maybe why older people were getting this more than kids. Not proven, but again, something that's being looked at um, based on some initial observational data. So I hope that answers the question. Um, it's certainly a good one and there's gonna be more to come on that, I'm sure. Uh, and that takes us to the end of episode six. Um, we'd like to have you stay tuned for episode seven, uh, where next week we will have a guest, Ms. Diane, Diana uh, Barrett, who uh, is the founder of Survivor Corps, which is a grassroots clearinghouse that connects people who not only recovered from COVID-19, um, but also with organizations that are collecting blood and plasma from them that can then be perhaps used uh, in, in the form of convalescent plasma for other patients who are suffering with it. Uh, in the meantime, uh, stay tuned for that and please do continue to send your questions to between two docs, that's T-W-O, uh, at gmail.com. Uh, we are gonna continue trying to put out a new episode every week as we can. And uh, in the meantime, stay well, stay good to each other, and let's get through the summer together with a little bit of fun, not all dour COVID stuff. So 